welcome to the Flex Success Podcast, where we teach you how to be less shit. Covering all things science relating to nutrition, training, recovery, and more. Who knows, we might even sprinkle in a dick joke or two. (laughs) Welcome back, everyone. Another episode of the Flex Success Podcast, where we teach you... How to be less shit. That's our tagline. That's the goal. That's the goal. I like it. And uh, today we're joined with my co-host Dean McKillop yep. and the VIP Jackson Pios. Thank you. <laughs> Although I've heard you called Peacock, be called Peacock before as well. Peacock. Oh God, Jacob's going to be so happy about this. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's a that's, that's a nickname from the one and only Jacob Skepis. Uh, you need to have you got one in return that you can throw back at him at least. I just call him Jacob Skypus. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. I'm digging it. Uh, <laughs> now, you've been on a million podcasts before, so you're probably sick of introducing yourself uh, and the little wrap-up, but I'm going to ask you to do it again. So could you yeah, please no tell, <laughs> tell our listeners who you are, what you do, and why you do it? Yeah, so I'm currently a PhD researcher at the University of Western Australia. Um, I've got a double degree, um, Bachelor of Science in Sports Science and Exercise and Health. I've also got an honours degree in exercise physiology um, and at the moment I'm re- my focus area of research is basically novel dietary strategies um, that athletes can use to lose body fat while retaining muscle mass um, and I'm also an accredited sports nutritionist so the bulk of my work is, is working with um, athletes from a variety of sporting disciplines, disciplines basically how can we get them uh, bigger, faster, and stronger. Okay, so the summary of that is you're a giant nerd. Yeah, in the best possible <laughs> way. <laughs> of course, in the best possible way. Well, one of my coaches yesterday, Nick, said, I'm just a big nerd. But what he actually meant was that he likes... Um, Sci-fi. No, no, no. What's the... He's Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And apparently they do podcasts on that shit and they listen to people talk about it live. No, you, you listen to people play it. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, That would not surprise me at all. <laughs> <laughs> not my thing, though. No, um, I also hear you're into anime, speaking of nerdy things. Oh, yeah. So Big we're going okay. to lead this with a, uh, uh, a friend of ours who's also Are like... Are we naming and shaming? Yeah, it's, his name's Oliver Purton. I don't know if he's popped up enough on yours for you to remember his name. No, we ch- we've chatted on Instagram a bit. Yeah. All right. So he has said, please tell him, one of your listeners, ha, Oliver Purton, <laughs> is glad to see that you've been consistently watching anime with subtitles now. He remembers when you first started watching Naruto in English dub and thought it was fucking sickening and disgraceful. <laughs> he said he had the excuse that watching anime with subtitles whilst eating is too difficult or distracting, but he's glad to see that you've made progress and aren't pathetic anymore. No, that, that's, very, that's very harsh because I, I found like I would, I'd put anime on first thing in the morning when I had breakfast and every time I was leaning out to eat, I was just missing shit. So <laughs> I, I, guess, I guess Oliver's... He's, he's probably just spilling his food all over the place while he uh, <laughs> watches the sub. Maybe he exclusively drinks liquids. I don't know about you, but I don't have to like lean over my bowl when I eat. Is that what's going on with you? Oh, yeah, that's me. Yeah, for sure. Okay. All right. Oh, well, I mean, I'm, I'm not excusing myself as being a piggy eater. I get like food on my elbow and forehead, but uh, I just don't have to lean over my bowl. But yeah. That's <laughs> Um, now, you mentioned in your intro that you are looking into novel, I think you mentioned, diet strategies. Could you just unpick that for us a little bit? 
Yeah. So I guess what I've been mostly focusing on is this thing called intermittent dieting, which encompasses basically um, refeeds and diet breaks. It's just sort of that, that umbrella term that, that encompasses both of those. Um, and I've just finished um, the first diet break study in athletes. Um, we had 60 athletes in that trial. Um, and it's actually the biggest athlete weight loss trial that's, that's ever happened in Australia. So um, it, was a, it was a monster of a project and it, it took me about um, 14 months just on the data collection alone. Um, and we're, we're analyzing the results um, for that and sort of making the story about what are the sort of practical takeaways from the numbers that we do have. Um, but just as a quick summary, basically what we did was we compared um, a traditional continuous diet where someone's in a, in a cal caloric deficit every day for the duration of the weight loss phase, which was 12 weeks long. And then we compared that to the um, intermittent diet group that used diet breaks. Now, they only had to diet for three weeks at a time. And then they had a one-week diet break where we took their calories up to maintenance. And we continued that cycle until they had accumulated 12 weeks of dieting um, as well. And what we wanted to do was clear up and, and hopefully just illuminate a little bit um, sort of some of the theoretical speculations about sort of what are the utility of diet breaks and and whether they're sort of have this metabolic boosting capacity and whether they can sort of prevent prevent the reductions in energy expenditure that typically accompany sort of weight loss and what sort of effects does that have on our appetite regulating hormones our, our mood state and, and performance in the gym so we we looked at a, a ton of variables um to see if, because this, this intermittent dieting and refeeds and diet breaks, while if you go on social media, um, you could be very easily led to believe that, that this, they're this highly evidence-based strategies and they can essentially prevent all the negative adaptations that um, accompany dieting. But in reality, um, until last year, we didn't even have a, a diet or a refeed study um, completed in athletes and, and we're, we're basically um, relying on mechanistic in, um, studies in sort of rodents um, and sort of intervention trials in, in overweight or obese populations which, which had far from optimized macronutrient um, ratios for, for what, what would justify um, the needs of, of an athlete on a, on a weight loss trial. You mentioned this being the first one in athlete populations. Uh, one that pops to mind is the Matador study, which is on intermittent dieting, but on obese males. Mm -hmm. So would this pretty much be something pretty similar, but just on a different population? Um, a little bit. So um, the lead, one of the lead authors on Matador, um, I actually linked up with, she works out of the University of Sydney and she's just only last week moved to where I'm at at UWA now too. Um, so I essentially reached out to her when I was sort of planning this project and sort of reviewing the current literature that we do have on refeeds and diet breaks. Um, and we essentially came together and she um, signed on as one of my co-supervisors, not at my university, but um, as an external supervisor. Um, and she, we sort of got together and she's, her area of research is, is um, focused specifically on sort of weight loss interventions for, for people with obesity. Um, but she was all open to the idea and she was actually blown away by the concept that, that even athletes were trying intermittent diets and refeeds and diet breaks so she thought it would be super cool that we sort of could plan a, a, a well-controlled like big participant size um, looking at a number of variable um, trial um, but do it in athletes too um, now the couple of changes that I amended from the from the Matador trial was instead of doing 
the two week diet, two week diet break that they did in Matador, um, we actually decided to go with a three week diet and then one week diet break for the reason that um, often now this is not always with bodybuilders. Sometimes they have the luxury of having these 25, 30 week weight loss phases, but in a lot of athletes like fighters and guys like that who have to go through weight camp, they don't have the luxury of, of having a 30 week weight loss phase. So what Matador did was it doubled the length of the intervention requirements to lose the weight. And that's a massive downside for a lot of athletes because it just, it, it, even though they're in diet breaks, they're, they're not eating sort of to, to what that, as much as they'd like to be eating because they're still out of, at, below their, their body fat or body set point. Um, but so what we did is by, by sort of reducing the length of the diet breaks and reducing um, the frequency of the diet breaks, it meant that the overall intervention length was shorter than matador and what we're interested in is could we still see the same benefits as we saw in matador but sort of without the the doubling the intervention sort of um, requirements which would have been a huge positive for athletes because i think um one of the um one of the reasons why athletes might be a little bit resistant to doing a, a two-on-two-off is just how freaking long it takes to lose the weight yeah and also sure. the extension of time spent in a deficit at once Whereas if we look more like, I suppose, empirically, the typical approach that people have uh, implemented over the years with bodybuilding and even athletes with the, the refeed approach as opposed to the diet break approach is you at least still have some dietary relief and potentially some carbohydrate you know, efficiency going on when you're getting food into a high degree each week. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. For sure. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned a few things that you're assessing. Are you, are you far through the data assessment process? Pretty far. Okay. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> so you can't spill the beans too much, but I, think um, I, I can tell you a bit. Like I'll, I'll tell you a bit. Um, so there's definitely findings that conflict with what was seen um, in Matador, and one of one of the sort of criticisms of Matador was that the the higher metabolic rate that was maintained in the intermittent diet group or the diet break group. Um, wasn't large enough to justify um, such greater fat loss efficiency and such greater weight loss that was observed in the diet break group. It was somewhat, from memory, it was somewhere around like 50 or 100 calories a day or something like that. It was, it was quite small. It, 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 not big enough to explain why the intermittent diet group um, on average lost kilos more sort of thing. Um, and one of the speculations was that although the, all these participants in Matador were getting provided with their meals, so in theory, like it's, it's very well controlled, they're not sort of in a metabolic ward. They can still go to the shops and, and, and buy things um, if, if they want to um, on top of the meal plan. Um, and so essentially what, what some people have said is, well, um, it's likely that the intermittent diet break group, um, they probably were just sticking to their diet a little bit better um, than the continuous diet group, which maybe were falling off and having things that they shouldn't be. And that's probably what explained, um, explained the sort of the, the differences in, in the sort of primary outcomes. Um, but in my study, um, looking at the data, I think it's pretty clear that because we're working with athletes, they're just a little bit better at sticking to the diet, even though they're, they're sort of hungrier. Yeah. Um, so that it doesn't look like the adherence issues are as much as a bigger factor mm. um, as it was in Matador. Cause I think um, 
this for a lot of the athletes it wasn't their first weight loss rodeo so they they sort of knew what to expect and like a bit of suffering is a sort of part and parcel of the game um so yeah there's there's some findings that don't line up with matador and i think it could be largely due to like the athletes as a whole in this cohort just being a little bit better at sticking to their diet regardless of whether they were allocated to to the continuous um or the intermittent diet group and there's also what we did for the first time was we compared um performance markers in the intermittent and the continuous dieting group and, and we measured strength and endurance in the quads hamstrings biceps and triceps and the the findings for, for those differences are, are super interesting and, and kind of confusing and um i'm actually um discussing with eric helms at the moment um how we can sort of make sense of of the differences that we're seeing um there are differences and um the, the differences aren't obvious. Like, like the, the, ob, the obvious difference that you might expect is, well, okay, the intermittent diet group, they're having these increasing carbs every three weeks for a week long. It would make sense that they can have a sort of a higher glycogen saturation point and potentially that will facilitate better endurance and strength performance across the trial. Um, but we aren't exactly seeing that. So um, the obvious answer isn't really lining up. So, um, yeah, some cool things are happening. I think that's just made me more frustrated. Well, hang on. Can I ask you a question about frequency <laughs> of testing? Like, are you testing only after the diet break week or is it kind of weekly? So we did a few tests. We obviously baseline. Um, then we had our, our first testing point was what we called after 12 weeks of energy restriction. So 12 weeks of dieting. Now that occurred at week 12 in the continuous diet group because that's when they finished their 12 weeks of dieting. But it actually occurred at week 15 in the intermittent group because they'd had the 12 weeks of dieting plus three diet breaks along the way. Uh -huh. But then we also did another measuring point at week 15 in both groups so the continuous group would then have a three-week diet break at the end. So then yeah. we compare when it's matched for absolute time. And then we did a final testing point in week 16 of the intermittent diet group, which is essentially give us a week 15 to week, week 16 is immediately pre and immediately post diet break. So we can see what sort of changes are happening, uh, happening before and after that, that seven-day diet break. Mm. Love some mm. confusing data. Yeah, it's super. <laughs> now it just is like it's at that point where you're just like, ah, tell me more. Yeah. <laughs> Especially considering you're saying it's interesting, which is implying that it's potentially not what you would expect if you assumed that carbohydrates were making you better. Mm. Um, yeah, I, I suppose there's no, you can't really do too much of it until you look at it all and then assess, go through all of the discussion and then determine what the outcomes are. But yeah, yeah. you definitely uh, pinpointed a, a big pothole. In, in the research though, something that a lot of people are interested in, something a lot of people can benefit from. Mm. So, uh, mm -hmm. yeah. so are any of the mechanistic expectations coming to fruition though that you would have expected? Um, so my blood, so I'm doing a, a separate analysis on, on the blood work um, and we're comparing sort of the, the, the big ones like the leptin and the thyroid and things that people have speculated to be involved with the potential benefits of refeeds and diet breaks. So we're going to be looking at that. That's been sent over to Brisbane. That's getting analyzed at the moment. That's probably not going to be published um, with my main findings. I think I'm just going to separate them because fire out. We've got so much data. Um, I just don't think anyone's going to read the damn publication if it's 20,000 words long sort of thing. Um, so I'm thinking about separating some of the mechanistic stuff versus sort of some of the macro stuff. Um, but in terms of some of the other things that I would have expected to happen, um, my hypothesis was that 
um, that the, the intermittent diet group, um, which had the diet breaks based on the findings of Matador and sort of just where theory lies, um, would have a much better maintenance um, of resting energy expenditure. Now, resting energy expenditure does go up um, with the diet break, but it, it just does not last anywhere near as long as I expected it to last. And, and when these findings get published, it's going to have a lot of... Um, it's going to clear up a lot of the, the BS surrounding this idea of like have a cheat day, have a refeed to sort of boost up your metabolism. Um, looking at the data, it, it just, it really doesn't look like it's as pronounced as what a lot of people think it is. Yeah. With that being said, Dean and I and the rest of the team at Flex Success, we do implement diet breaks um, and refeeds with our clients, uh, not only because of physiological benefits, because that hasn't been proven just anecdotally, but because of the psychological benefits we've found, uh, like, for example, people know that, you know, on the sixth day of the week, they've got two higher days of food to look forward to. So they're going to push through more. But if they didn't know that was coming up, they just feel like they can't take it anymore. So we really do find that it, it helps with adherence and just that psychological break from hunger um, and yeah. even food type restriction. So I think that we would still push forward with it, even if the physiological benefits weren't as strong as what we may predict. Yeah, just speaking anecdotally, like from having to deal with all the participants, like <laughs> on a sort of at least a four weekly basis when they come into the lab, um, it did seem to me that the that mood disturbance was a whole lot less um, in the in the intermittent diet break group, um, and even sort of because I only had the diet sort of three weeks consecutively, even if they were feeling kind of shitty at the end of week two. Um, they could say, okay, well, I've, Jackson, I've just got to hang on for seven days and, and then so the calories are going to come up and I get a little bit of relief. Um, so definitely, I think, potentially an adherence benefit there. And what I was finding a lot is, is sort of by day five, day six of the diet break, um, most of those guys are like, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of ready to jump back into a deficit now and, and, and dig again. So yeah. I think it has some utility there. Um, and com compared to the continuous group, I, I saw some... Um, I saw some major subjective changes in sort of their, just their general vigor and sort of um, their mood around the lab and things like that. Um, it doesn't look like the, the changes that I perceived are um, as notable in some of the um, questionnaire outcomes that we use to evaluate psychology, but I will tell you that there was significant differences in how the participants perceived their, their physique um, either, either positively or negatively. So there's a significant difference there and there was significant differences in how hungry the participants were um, and um, between, this is between the groups and differences between um, basically the diet satisfaction or how, or how satisfied they were um, in the trial. Mm. Yeah, cool. There's, there's and we're looking at varied athletes in this instance too, aren't we? We're not specifically talking aesthetic. That's Correct. Yeah. 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 So we had fivers, we had rollers, yeah. Mm. yeah. Interesting um, comments. Because like the the cool like sort of I suppose like dichotomy we've got here going is obviously you're the researcher uh, and obviously have some uh, you know implementation on your own point of view as a coach. Liz does dearly uh, is dealing primarily with gen pop and then I specifically just do bodybuilding prep right now. And <laughs> Although we all use varied, although we all use similar strategies, they're obviously the implementation is the key to to getting the result. And like I use varied amounts of refeeds and diet breaks and not not and 
some of the things that I mentioned to specific physique athletes that are hyper-focused on aesthetics is to never assess their physiques in times of like large energy restriction because mm. they tend to talk to me about how terrible they look when they're doing that. But when they've had some food, ama amazingly, they all of a sudden think that they look like the rock again. So <laughs> yeah. I'll be, I'm really keen to sort of see what comes out of this. It's going to be... Uh, yeah, really I, I think there's something, what you just discussed there, I think there's something going on there. Mm. And I think, I think it will get picked up with the data. Yeah, cool. You did recently a debate with Menno on intermittent dieting. And Dean and I had some... I don't know, um, opinions is the wrong word, but I guess we had a discussion around, you know, when it would be appropriate to do it and when it wouldn't. And you're not suggesting that uh, the, the results of this will give a blanket rule, like, yes, everyone should, but rather just guidelines, right? Like you're not trying to say that intermittent dieting is the way forward for everyone or every athlete. Yeah, no, not at all. Um, I will say at the, at the point, um, of that debate with Menno, um, I was a whole lot more confident about the physiological benefits of, of diet breaks and refeeds than I am now. Okay. Um, basically because if, if you select um, any of the intervention trials that have compared an intermittent diet that uses moderate energy restriction, so not intermittent fasting compared to continuous energy restriction, you almost always see a benefit um, in terms of fat loss efficiency or retention of, of resting energy expenditure, sometimes better retention of lean mass. You're always seeing benefits um, in the intermittent moderate energy restriction group. And there's about six studies there. And like none of them, are, uh, uh, apart from one with Bill Campbell's labs, lab, they're, they're, not in um, they're not in athletes, um, but you're still seeing like a very positive like pattern of, of, of superior outcomes. Um, so I was a little bit more confident about the, the, the physiological rationale, like, like Bill Campbell's double day refeed study, like better attention of, of metabolic rate, better attention of lean mass in the group that did refeeds, um, Matador, better attention of resting metabolic rate, more fat loss, better fat loss efficiency. Um, like we're seeing pretty solid results there, but, um, in after, after looking like hard at the numbers of this study and like, um, I'm confident in this study because I was the one running it. So like I was, I know what went right and what went wrong and where the limitations were and things like that. And like, I know that our study was like pretty solid because like I was solid, like in terms of carrying it out. Um, so this is, this is the study that I can be most confident about um, because I, I know what happened on the ground. And yeah, I, I just, I'm, I'm less convinced about um, the physiological rationale behind it. I think definitely for psychology um, and I'm certainly, uh, there's probably still not a blanket rule in terms of who needs to do refeeds and diet breaks and, and who doesn't. But um, yeah, I don't think, I think a lot of, I think there's still a lot of confusion about them. And when this paper comes out, it's probably going to clear up um, a little bit uh, around the, the, the physiological components of them. Yeah, cool. Yeah. Well, we're looking forward to it. It certainly sounds like it's going to be another, the, this, the same with nutrition and even training, you know, basic principles still sit solid in the research they haven't changed much and it's really now going to be the nuance of implementation yeah and almost like you said this the manipulation of the psychology of the client yeah talking about psychology though um i oh, i mean no two humans are the same right and i find that most people respond better to intermittent dining because they know that break's coming up but i do have some examples of clients not dealing well at all with an energy restriction any more than a little modest, mm. you know? So if I'm to tell them, hey, we're gonna go a little harder because we've got diet breaks coming up, yada, yada, 
they, some of them just freak out and go, no, I just can't deal with that level of hunger. Um, I can't deal with more than a 15% deficit, whatever it is. And so for those people, it's, it's, it's not even like there's a psychological benefit for everyone. It's just for some. Mm. So for coaches listening, you really have to assess what's best for your client. Mm. Yeah. Do you think Jackson, if you're based on your current implementation of either diet breaks, refeeds or not with any current clients you're dealing with, will you change your application significantly or just dependent on the person? Um, I'll probably be a little, little less trigger happy on them. Um, like probably over the last 12 months, um, I'd say 90%, um, of my athletes um, were using them uh, in some way or another. Um, and it was almost um, not on sort of um, like they, they were, they were pre-planned based on the similar protocols to either what was published in Matador or what was published by um, Bill Campbell's lab and, and sort of the study that I was running. Um, I think going forward um, it, because I'm now sort of on the side that um the psychological rationale behind them is a little stronger than, than the physiological rationale. Um, I think they're probably going to have more utility when psychology, mood, vigor is actually taking a subjective hit when you can notice that with your client. And, it, and it's going to be more of a sort of if the athlete doesn't feel like they need them, then maybe don't have them, maybe just keep digging and, and maybe save them for later on um, when you're actually noticing like the, their mood take, take a, a hit and they're sort of a bit more grumpy and, and sort of, um, they don't want to go out and be social and, and things like that. That's, that's probably a better time to use them. And um, so I, I'd say that probably, probably my frequencies is, is probably going to decrease a little bit um, in terms of, yeah, how, how often I was, I was using them for all athletes. Um, but I still think that um, there's, there's a huge time component into justifying whether an athlete has a refeed or a diet break. For example, if you've got a fighter um, and they're, they've, they got announced to fight in 10 weeks' time, um, you're just not going to have the luxury of, of doing a three-week diet and then one-week diet break. You just won't get them in shape in time. So um, if, if you've got a bodybuilder who's they've finished a 24-month off-season and they know that they're going to be competing at maybe six, 12 months' time, something like that, in that window, then maybe when you've got the luxury of a 30-week prep, then yeah, sure, like have them structure them in because you've got that you've got that luxury of that extra extra time up your sleeve and 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 you're probably going to maintain a little bit of a better psychological state than than if you just dug them hard for for 30 weeks um straight out um but yeah i think i think my my use of them is going to going to change it a little bit but i still think they have utility okay so what sort of clients do you work with because um from a quick social media stalk i see you prep some female bikini girls and then there was some fighters do you don't really have a niche? You sort of work with everyone? Um, like, honestly, I prefer working with sports athletes just because, like, when you're doing four years of sort of undergraduate and postgraduate studies at university, you're not, you're not learning about how to get bodybuilders peeled and jacked. Like, you're learning yeah. about how to get rugby players, like, boxers, sprinters, uh-huh. like, big, fast and strong, like, and a massive performance component. Um, so I, I do prefer working with the sports athletes because I just, I feel more confident in, in working with those guys. I feel like I have um, a better sort of solid knowledge base that, that other coaches don't have. Whereas if you compare that to sort of bodybuilding coaching, um, a hell of a lot of the top bodybuilding coaches are just built off experience in reality and, and sort of 
very little sort of university backbone um, in terms of to, to where they got the knowledge that they did. So, um, yeah, like I, I prefer with, with, with sports athletes definitely because of their performance component. Um, and sometimes it can be a little bit tricky to um, pick up performance impairment or performance improvements when you're working with a bodybuilder sort of mid off season and like on their third consecutive mesocycle and something like that. Whereas if you've got a, a, a let's say a sprinter um, who I'm working with at the moment, like very small differences in their daily intake can, can impact like, like seconds of, of their time. And that, that's, a, that's, it's, it's almost like you're, you're um, basically working in like the pit for like a Ferrari race car or something like that. And like the tiniest little like change can, can impact the outcome of the race. Whereas I think with, with bodybuilding, because it's such a longer game, um, some of those very sensitive differences don't tend to matter on the, like the macro scheme and the aesthetic look and, and things like that. So yeah, that's, that's why I tend to prefer working with sports athletes. Cool. And that means you don't classify bodybuilding as a sport. Yes. We don't. Um, even. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I wouldn't say it. Like, like, it's fucking hard. Like, I've done it. Like, it is no joke. But, yeah, like, there's, it doesn't have, like, it's the, it's the only sport in the world where, like, you're performing your worst on competition day. That's like, so true. That's the only sport. I like to consider it a beauty pageant with the idea of yeah. beauty being a little different. It's true. Yeah. When you're sparkly yeah. and, and you're tan. I'll tell you what, coming from a subjective <laughs> team sport background, competing in bodybuilding, it's extremely frustrating, but it's also kind of interesting in that you kind of are your own little experiment. What's frustrating? The subjectivity? Yeah, it's a, it is. It's a beauty pageant. Like, mm -hmm. And it's a genetic lottery too, man. Like, politics. Yep. I could rock up my best ever and just get smoked by somebody super, like like a WA guy, James Newcomb could show up 10 weeks out and absolutely smoke me at my best because he's <laughs> awesome. You know, it's like, damn you, this sucks. Well, yeah, it is what it is. Um, that's why I just starve people so they can do it. Yeah, all, all the girls just sleeping with the judges. Mm. <laughs> Almost guaranteed creepy. <laughs> Woo, go girl. Um, now, I would like to know if you regret posting this ATP article. <laughs> no, that's, a, that's an off-topics one. We, we already said we're just going to joke and Because <laughs> everyone's been I like, like I, I, I don't regret it. Like, I stand by my comments. Like, it wasn't coming out of place of, like, oh. any personal vendetta against them. Like, like if it, it doesn't matter whether it's a supplement company or a coach or, or, or anybody, if they're putting out information that I don't think is backed by science or evidence and it's impacting the way or potentially hurting um, people who could potentially don't have the tools to basically interpret whether what that content is, is fact or fiction and, and it's sort of impairing their results. Then sure. I'm going to speak up about it. So it was nothing, nothing against ATP like per se. It's just, I felt that the information that they were giving out at the time um, wasn't evidenced by, by science whatsoever. And I, and I wanted to give my opinion on it. Totally. No, no, I loved it because I kind of saw that article as being a watchdog for the industry um, and helping uninformed consumers. But I'm also meant because everyone's just asking you about it. It's like, mm. you're, you're <laughs> you're sick of it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, did, I like honestly didn't expect it to go like as viral as it did. Like it did. I thought it would rustle a few feathers. Um, but yeah, rustled a lot. Good. Um, but, fu but funnily enough, like I think it might've like not saying that that article was a stimulus for the change, but we're seeing a lot of changes in the supplement industry now, like sort of 12 months after that, that article was, was published so i'm not sure if that did generate just a little bit more discussion and sort of putting a little bit more heat on these companies that were making sort of unverified claims to say sort of 
what, what you're saying is, do you actually have anything to, to support what you're saying? Do, do we have any evidence to know that what you're saying is actually true? Um, and, and I like that, that these TGA regulations are, are sort of getting a lot more strict because I don't think that you should be able to sell a product if you can't prove that it's safe and effective. No. Mm. So I've always disliked the lack of regulation in the supplement industry. Um, I'm all for some, but Dean, I, I haven't um, read them in enough detail, but Dean's not yet convinced that the proposed uh, regulations are all good. No, not necessarily. Oh, no, they're definitely not all good. Yeah. Like a lot of good people are going to get burnt by it, like mm. 100%. But I think when we, when we look back at it in maybe 10 years' time, if the changes do go through, I think it's going to have an overall greater positive impact on the industry than it is negative. For sure. I think if the implementation is fair, that's the main thing because then everybody mm -hmm. can do the, do the due diligence to get in or get out appropriately. Yeah. yeah. And like, honestly, like good people, like if they're putting supplements that are evidence-based, like they should have no issues showing that they're safe and effective to, to get the new approval. If you've got nothing to hide. Have you heard of the lab door? No. So the lab door for, for listeners who, um, who are listening, it's difficult to know what's in your supplements. Oh, you can read the label. Yeah, but then we have to trust that's true. And that's not always the case. So the lab door is a free online resource and you can just type in the word creatine or the word vitamin C and the lab door tests uh, on, on various different things. Like if the dosages is what the packet says it is, or if it has everything in it that the yeah, packet says in it. Potency plus um, quality. Yeah, and it gives you an overall score on, on various markers. Uh, and you can purchase your supplements accordingly. So the lab door might be a good thing for, for listeners to look at, but you who, can also... Who funds, who funds the testing? The, uh, it's public funded, so you donate to the lab door. Right. But what yeah. I do is I like to buy my supplements through the lab door because they've got links to Amazon. Um, Wherever it may or, be. Or iHerb or whatever, and the lab door get like a little kickback from the supplements that I buy because I've clicked mm. the link through their website. Right. So if you're going to buy supplements, you may as well uh, be contributing to such an awesome cause. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But uh, I found the other, just to kick back onto the, uh, the diet strategy stuff, the thing I found interesting there is it sounds like almost like um, with uh, training periodization, you're likely going to move back into a reactive diet deload, just like people are mostly now doing with training. As yeah. opposed to product. 100%. Mm. 100%. Yeah, I like it. But I'm still interested to read all this nuance that you're saying is interesting. Uh, yeah, no, there's, there's going to be a lot there. There's going to be a lot there. We'll probably have to get back on the podcast just to talk about making sense of it when it gets published. Yeah, but like your smirk indicated to me that that was going to be this, but it's not true, you asshole. <laughs> <laughs> I can't, like, honestly, like, I would love to, but like authors will be like, and <laughs> I've, trust me, I've had enough heat from the university um, already. So I just, yeah, I've got to walk a little bit. Well, you're doing touch. a great job about building some traction That's for true. when it gets published. When is it due to be finished, do you think? Um, I'm hoping, are, are you coming to UABC? We would like to. We, we actually yeah. fly out to the UK on the 12th at, no, yeah, at the 12th at 3 a.m. from the Gold Coast. So hopefully yeah. we should be there Friday, Saturday. The 11th and the 12th, yeah. I'm thinking that the entire results will be analysed in the next few weeks. Then discussion sort of be completed by maybe May and submitted to public submitted for publication at that point. Um, but then my plan is um, in July to, to present those findings as a conference abstract at UABC before they've been published. Cool. That'd be wicked. Uh, that'll, that'll be sort of the first time. Yeah, cool. And you, you'd be Friday, Saturday, I assume too. Yeah. 
Yeah, Matt. Yeah, cool. Awesome. We have a research review at Flex Success, so we're looking forward to choosing your study mm. to review. Awesome. Present awesome. to people. Yeah, we'll be. It's gonna be massive. Um, anything else you want to talk about regarding die break refeeds? I think they're all pretty good. Well, we can't really say much more until there's it's published, it's right? It's true. Yeah. It's all hearsay now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So we um have some some questions for you unrelated to the study. Oh yeah, I actually had an uh, one that I thought, even though you're saying now mechanistically things are changing. One thing that I've seen consistently now it can go either way. You put an athlete in a refeed or into a refeed, double day refeed, triple day refeed, whatever it may be. Weight can either obviously stay neutral, go positives in the game, or they can actually lose sometimes. What would you uh, equate the loss to mechanistically if you had to think about it? Man, I've thought about this question for so long. Um, and I, I, like, I still don't have a solid answer. Like the, the obvious answer that I'm sure you're probably familiar with is, is this idea that there's this cortisol accumulation during the deficit weeks. And that cortisol accumulation is bringing water attention um, along with it. And once energy balance is reestablished, whether it's a one, two, three day diet break, um, it's having this whooshing effect or this, this flashing of, of the water attention that's associated with that cortisol. Um, but I've also looked at a lot of a other data um, that shows that cortisol actually doesn't increase as much as we thought um, with moderate caloric deficits. So I'm not totally bought in on the cortisol sort of hypothesis. But if you look at the, the Minnesota starvation study, um, where they essentially, they simulated uh, like a concentration camp for the participants. Like it was, it was set back in, in, in World War II times and it was for um, sort of people that, that wanted to help their country, but they weren't able to get accepted for sort of the, the, the combat. Um, so they, they went to this study, it was government funded and whatnot. And um, they, they simulated exactly the way um, of a concentration camp. So they were on like 1,000, 1,200 calories a day, um, like kept in, within a fence and like were doing like very monotonous jobs all day. Um, and they, they just tracked all, all the participant changes um, in their physiology and their, their, their body composition and whatnot. Now, while the, these guys, they lost enormous amounts of, of weight and fat, um, one of the, the big observations from the researchers is this sort of really prominent edema effect. And you can see, if you look at the original publication, you can see these photos of the participants like legs and feet and the, the water retention is, is just huge, like massively, um, like sort of like they've just got off a 24 hour flight sort, sort of thing. And even though that was published in, in the eighties, we still don't really have a pretty good explanation for why that water retention is happening. Um, it, it's clearly happening and it's some sort of byproduct of, of fat loss or fat oxidation, which makes sense considering like when the, the, the fatty acid molecule actually gets oxidized, we're releasing carbon dioxide as water as, as the byproducts. But um, I'm not sure if that's enough to explain this like really significant water retention that we're seeing with very strong deficits. Um, so I, I basically say that I think it's, it's a, reduction in water retention once energy balance is re-established, but I don't think it's related to cortisol per se. I'm just not sure what it's related to. Maybe that can be your next study. <laughs> yeah, that'd be cool. 
this is what I think podcasts should be designed to do for people like yourself. We just poke you with ideas and then you go and do all the work. <laughs> I like it. I like how this works. Um, another one I think uh, we were uh, tossing up to ask was, I think uh, your preference from what I've heard in the past, I don't know if this has shifted, so I apologize if it has, but if you were to situate a diet break within an individual's training and periodized program, you have a preference to put it at, say, the back end of the overreach as opposed to the deload like some may do. Is that still the case? Um. This, this is probably more, this answer is probably more so because my knowledge foundation is built with working with sports athletes with a higher sort of focus on performance and sort of less from sort of being specialist in bodybuilding um, mm. or powerlifting. Um, but it just, when, when it, you, you read any sort of physiological textbook, um, the general principle is that you, it, it makes sense to give an athlete more fuel when they're doing more work. Um, so I, I, at the end of a mesocycle when, when volumes are super high, um, because when an athlete has high energy availability, carbohydrate availability, they're able to tolerate and recover from, from higher training volumes. So it, it would make sense that potentially there's, there's a recovery benefit in that, in that final week of a mesocycle when you're potentially overreaching just to sort of help to cope with some of that, that fatigue that's building up. But then again, I'm not sure if it's going to matter if you just push it out for that one week and then you have the deload with the diet break um, straight away after. Like it also makes sense that there could be like this hyper recovery phase, like decreasing training load um, while increasing calories just to really like reset the system. Maybe that is better. Um, We don't have any data on it, that's for sure, um, to look at it. But I would say that if if you're not a bodybuilder or a powerlifter um, and like – you've got a week coming up where performance is super like is of the utmost priority. For example, you've got a, a fighter um, and they're at week, they're five weeks out of camp and they're going into like the heaviest sparring session against like some really good athletes that are coming into the club um, and how you perform sort of in that sparring session is going to sort of have a massive carry on effect and what, where your sort of psychology and confidence and motivations at heading into the final few weeks of the camp that would make a lot of sense to, to give the athlete more fuel then when they can potentially have a performance improvement and then that they're just going to go into that final stretch of camp feeling really good about themselves and really confident about the fight as opposed to having them do that really important sparring week on low calories, performance probably going to take a hit. They get beat up a little bit in, in, in the ring and then they're like, fuck, I got, I, I'm, not, I'm not feeling good. Like they start doubting themselves and things like that. And you could make the same sort of application with like a sprinter so a sprinter will have like sessions and, and, and training blocks where like performance will, will not really be measured. They'll just have volume work that they need to do. But then every sort of basically they'll have a testing week where they want, where the coach will want to see how they're performing and how close they are to their, their PBs and things like that. And if they're doing that testing week when calories are low, it's probably not going to give an accurate reflection of how that athlete is actually progressing along the training cycle. Whereas if you sort of took them up to energy balance and sort of give a more accurate picture of what the athlete's potential performance might be. I think that makes a lot more sense to do it then as well. Um, but I can see how there's a big difference between those sort of athletes and, and bodybuilders and powerlifters. Maybe for those guys, um, even psychological, just being able to take a load off from training while eating a little bit more food um, might feel better. But on the other side of the coin, if you like, they're going to be having less food, like total food than they otherwise would be if it, assuming that we're trying to maintain 
body weight or, or energy balance during the diet break. They're going to be having less food if they have it with a deload versus if they had the, the diet break with a higher volume training week. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think they're all completely relevant points. I'd even push the powerlifters into your performance guys too. Yeah. I mean, mm. if you look at they probably should really, yeah. you know, impact of cross-sectional area, carbohydrate retention on performance, biggest overreach mm-hmm. week, likely the same. The only time that, yeah, I think, and you've probably already highlighted this and, and, and pushed towards it too, is that uh, absolute performance for a bodybuilder in the gym is not necessary, really only relative. Mm-hmm. So if we can yeah. minimize the stress of that phase by maybe deloading and diet breaking or three or four days, it might yeah. be advantageous. But yeah, I, I think I'm on the same path. It's the annoying answer of it depends. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I hate saying that as well. I know it's like the answer to everything. Though, so you qualify the it depends. I think it matters. Of yeah. course, of course, yeah. and it was more qualified. <laughs> but um, man, I um, I'm, yeah, I think it's been a pretty good chat. I, yeah. I mean, we could go and go and go and go. So, uh, if I we open up another can, it's just going to be more and more time, which we don't want. To. <laughs> I really like to sort of tighten and uh, and whatnot. So, at the start, we said obviously the the motto of this is how to be less shit. So from a uh, from your point of view, what are maybe some of your top tips for dieting strategies for athletes on how to be less strict shit? I think um, placing more value on satiety strategies. I still don't think that they're valued as much as they should be based on the fact that the reason diets suck is because you can't eat as much as as you want to eat and it threatens your potential adherence to the program. Um, that's the fundamental principle behind the success of dieting. So I'm unsure why coaches and athletes aren't putting more of a priority onto sort of trying to maximize satiety strategies versus sort of trying to optimize macronutrient ratios for performance and things like that. If it's, if we're talking about a weight loss or a fat loss phase. Um, so some of the strategies that I don't think are being used as they should be is, um, when people talk about sort of food selections for, for satiety, typically at the top of the hierarchy sits protein. People are like, you've got to have a high protein diet to maximize your, your satiety. But when you look at the research, and, and it, it's fairly clear that you'll get far better um, satiety from filling up your diet with a high proportion of low energy dense foods like fruits, vegetables, whole grains, and things like that compared to adding an extra chicken breast on, on, on your daily intake. Now, uh, I think a lot of people make the mistake when they're trying to sort of improve their satiety and they're struggling on a diet break is, is I'm sorry, not diet break, struggling on a diet is when they, they might take away some of these calorie, calories allocated to carbohydrate and put it into extra protein. And now they're eating sort of more protein than they typically need to sort of ma- maximize muscle retention and, and sort of and those things. Whereas that's actually can have a potential downside because that extra protein's probably not going to do anything for your muscle retention or your muscle growth. And it's probably not having that much of a significant impact on suppressing hunger further. And you've just taken a chunk of that, that carbohydrate away that you could be actually used to facilitating performance and recovery and, and carbohydrate being the primary fuel for the, the central nervous system, which, which pretty much underpins our sense of fatigue and things like that. So I think that's where a lot of people get wrong um, and sort of just take your protein up to sort of where it needs to be. So somewhere 1.8 to 2.2 grams per kilo of body weight is fine. Going up much further than that is probably not going to have much of an impact on satiety. You get far more bang for your bucks sort of distributing your carbohydrates to these really low energy dense sources like like fruits and vegetables and limiting your um, the proportion of sort of 
high energy dense foods like avocados, olive oils, nuts and things like that, which can be considered as healthy fats, but they have a very, very poor satiety effect. Um, now you can be eat, if you're if you're eating sort of two three tablespoons of, of, of olive oil and, and you're on twenty three hundred calories, your hunger hunger is going to be far worse than it could be if you allocated those three hundred calories to sort of some carrots and some rock melon and and and, and some watermelon or, or, or something like that. Um, and I think this whole this whole concept got a little bit confused when with this rise of if it fits your macros dieting or, or sort of eat whatever you can, eat, eat whatever you want as long as it fits your calories because um, it taught people that what they could do was fit Snickers bars into their daily intake while they're on 2,400 calories. And to from an onlooker that hasn't dieted yet, they're looking at that. In theory, it makes, this, it makes the diet look easier. Like far out, they, could, they can lose weight while eating Snickers bars. Like this diet looks amazing. In reality, it tends to have the opposite effect. And you've just allocated 250 calories to something that's so calorically dense, your overall food volume and your overall satiety potential in your calories left over the day is going to be significantly reduced. So I think this, if it's your macros, can be great and we don't need to sort of take any foods off the table, but they're certainly better and worse foods. And if you're allocating um, the, these treats, um, on face value, while you think it might make your, your diet feel easier, it's probably going to make it feel harder in the long run. Mm. Mm. So our company name, Flex Success, uh, was born from the term flexible dieting, but we've kind of moved away from that a little bit because people do have this Pop-Tart and Snickers bar mentality towards uh, their macronutrients, and that is not at all something that um, we support because we know that there's more to health and body composition than just macros and food selection is a huge one. So yeah. we would entirely agree. And that's why we've moved away from having flexible dieting all over our website. And mm, yeah. <laughs> people would arrive with this preconceived idea that dieting was easier, easier if you could eat whatever you wanted, you know, yeah. and I'm like, Oh dude, yeah. you have no idea the pain you're about to be put in. If you choose those foods. Yeah. Um, yeah. The next study for you, Jackson, it is a high volume, low hedonic based food with no psycho uh, psychological support versus a, a more of a flexible approach to have the opportunity to choose from higher hedonic, hedonic foods, but with psychological support. And I'll tell you why. You when I say psychological, psychological support, support, like say somebody talking to them about um, food behaviors, their, their, their um, mindset around food choice types okay. of foods, essentially trying to get somebody into the position where they flexibly know that they can have whatever they want, but they have the choice and the right to do whatever they want okay. as well, as opposed to saying- Some education. Yeah. Because yeah. it's kind of been my experience a little bit in the prep uh, world that the volume game can also go so far that they're essentially chasing volume forever and they're never okay with hunger. Mm. And the individuals that I find that are okay with sometimes choosing to have something that's a little bit more calorically dense, so long as they have a good relationship with food, tend to sort of deal with the dieting process a little bit better from an anecdotal, more uh, 100%. point of view, you know, whereas those that are like having um, uh, cognac noodles, you know, they're the worst kind of adherence. Part. Yeah. hundred um, percent. I think, I think um, if you're using things like cognac noodles and xanthan gum, like you're misinterpreting the, the low energy dense sort of hypothesis. Um, and I think that that, that 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 problem really arises when you've got a gen pop athlete, I'd say more so gen pop people who sort of just want to get in shape for something. And they come in with this assumption that because they're going to work with a coach, you're going to get them in shape with little sort of suffering on their end. And I think um, when you've got an athlete coming in who sort of 
maybe they've done it before or at least they, they sort of understand that, that suffering and, and sort of discipline is part and parcel of, of what they want to do. The outcomes just tend to be a hell of a lot better and, and they're not sort of seeking satiety. When, when an athlete understands that from week eight to week zero of a contest prep that um, you're just probably not going to feel very satisfied it just ends up being a, a hell of a lot easier to work with them when compared to if you've got sort of a gen pop dieter who's sort of always trying to seek that they're just like, I just want to feel full. And it's like, well, mm-hmm. you're probably not going to feel full at, for, for a little while or until sort of post diet. And when, once, when they understand that um, and they have those sort of expectations, the outcomes just tend to be a lot more better. Yeah. yeah I think that's an appetite driven behavior versus true hunger. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Just but, um, embrace some hunger. All right. Um, that, was a, that was a good long, how to be less shit. It was, and I we totally egged you on there um, and stretched it out for you. But um, we have some fun questions. So we always wrap up with okay. three fun questions. Uh, the first one is a little bit morbid sounding, but it can oh, be Oh, no, fun. no way. No something worth sharing. Oh, I missed it this time. So anything worth sharing, uh, uh, Jackson, so that you think is of value to the listeners that you may have watched, listened, or... A book, a movie, in. a podcast. No way. Okay. Um, no, don't share an enemy. That's not allowed. Can I say that? That's what I was going to say. <laughs> I was going to say, if you're, if you're an athlete with um, aspirations to, to reach some sort of success, whether that's with your physique or, or some sort of sporting or competitive outcome, I think watching Naruto will give you more of the motivation than you'll ever need. And people brush it off as being this child's cartoon but I can honestly say that that I've I've learned more about myself and my sort of um, training inspiration and, and and sort of my motivations than, than I have from any other entertainment product, book, movie, TV show ever. Maybe I, I should stop. So if you haven't watched it, watch it. Okay. It's long, and it, it's I call it it's a gentleman's show because. Um, if, if you're sort of, if you're not patient and you just want those like quick action and like 10 episode series season and then it's done and you just want action the whole time, then you'll hate Naruto. But if, if you're patient, like, like bodybuilding and you're re- you're willing to play the long game, the, the return of the investment is huge. So how many seasons are there? I don't know how many seasons there are, but there are 700 episodes. Yeah, oh. nice. God damn! How do you find time to do all this other stuff with seven hundred episodes? Well, I, I I've been watching it for about three years, and I only watch about one or two episodes a day, and they only go for twenty minutes. So okay. I limit myself. I don't binge. So if I binge, I would not get any shit done. <laughs> all right. Well, I think uh, I might have to try it oh. then instead of turning my nose up at it. I've never yeah. done any anime, and I just sort of typecast it as Sailor Moon. Do we want? Do we need English yeah. titles though? Um. Well, you. <laughs> So you want to, yeah, either if, if you watch it in the sub, so you get the subtitles down the bottom and it's Japanese audio, it feels a lot more authentic than it is with the English voice actors. Okay. Right. All right, cool. Yeah. All right, give it a go. Um, All right. So the true number question one then. Yes. Go on. <laughs> if you had to die tomorrow and you knew you were going to, how would you die and why? I would like to... Racing, racing a Ferrari, burning up in flames, <laughs> going, like, going like 350 kilometers an hour. All right. What a That's way to go badass. out. It's so yeah. hyper-masculine of you. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> um, okay, and... Number two is just something that people don't know about you. Ah, uh, yes. Can't use anime this time. Yeah. Um, Make it embarrassing. Okay. <laughs> um, every weekend, I still watch the Disney Channel. Oh, me and you are best friends. I think we just became best friends. I love Disney. <laughs> That's gold. Any particular uh, show? Uh, Hercules is my number one, like movie and TV series. Um, other TV series, Kim Possible and Recess. Nice. There you go. I, uh, Dean over here likes movies where people are shot in the face, followed by an explosion, followed by a car race. And that doesn't really go with me. Like, please, can we just watch Frozen or Up or Finding Nemo? <laughs> so um, <laughs> it's, it's a bit of a contrast in the house. We have to pick and choose. Yeah. <laughs> Number three. So this is a game we got for Christmas and it's called Shitty Choices. And it's a famous game of Would You Rathers. So we do, some of these are horrendous, dude. I'm going to warn you, but it's luck of the draw. Would you rather be an amazing artist but unable to see any... No, that one's shit. We're not doing that. Oh. Sorry. Next. I like that one. I'll be like Beethoven. But you wouldn't be able to see it. Um, okay. Would you rather never be able to drink soft drink ever again? I feel like these are shit ones. Yeah, it's luck of the draw. All right. Or be able... <laughs> or wait. Or only be able to drink soft drink. Never be able to drink soft drink. Easy. Yeah, there's a lot of other good drinks. But Coke Zero. You got very lucky. Yeah. Would well, you prefer Pepsi Max or Coke Zero? Pepsi Max. Just when I thought we were becoming friends, Jackson. <laughs> you went and ruined it. Man. <laughs> Can't have a Pepsi Max over Damn it. Finding Nemo with exclusive. <laughs> this is a Coke Zero household. When we, when we put out a uh, request for individuals who might be interested to uh, come on board as a coach of their team, we had that as a question at the end. Uh, no, I wrote the application form and I said, do you like Coke Zero uh, because you're intelligent or something? Or are you an unintelligent weirdo that likes Pepsi? So I clearly loaded the questions. Yeah. And still most people chose Pepsi. Pepsi. And then at the very last question. Yeah, I've got a job. Yeah, we're always <laughs> like, uh, is there anything else you would like to say? And you'd think they'd take it seriously, right? But everyone that wrote Pepsi pretty much wrote, if you like Coke, you're an idiot. Yeah, everyone really backed their Pepsi. <laughs> and what was who did we end up hiring did they like shannon i can't remember shannon and luke tulloch it was oh, i think they were both pepsi people I think they were both pepsi. man we wouldn't have chosen a coke i'm outnumbered <laughs> oh, <God>. Ooh, <laughs> <double> me. <laughs> all right jackson thank you for your time um and uh we look forward to the release of your your study yes but before you run away if anyone wants to find you mate where can oh, yes. they find you what are your important details um, best place to get me is just Instagram. So anything I'm doing will we'll basically go through there at least. Um, so that's just at Jackson Pios. Um, if you want to be sort of up to date with just my research pubs, um, get me on ResearchGate. Just um, search my name. I'm going to have a number of publications coming through there in, in sort of the next 12 months. We've got a blood flow restriction study getting published. Um, we'll have the, the big diet break study. Um, and we've also got um, another one at the moment that I'm still in data collection for where we're looking to see if how lean someone is and how long they've been dieting for and whether they're male or female impacts the way you respond to a diet break. Cool. Oh, nice.
Very interesting. Choosing some good topics. Juicy. Mm, BFR. Interested. Yeah. Next podcast. All right. Thanks, listeners. (laughs) Thanks, Jackson. Catch you later. Thanks, mate. No worries. Thanks a lot.